So you wanna watch a movie but you don't know which Choosing the one can be a bitch But Jared and Drew have perfected the art So sit back, relax, and trust the dark It's Dartboard Movie Night What's going on everyone? I am Drew And I am Jared And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, the movie podcast where we hurl inanimate objects at the wall to decide our fates We have saddled ourselves with an oldie this week, Jared. Yeah. How do you, we how have. you feel about it? Well, I, feel, I shouldn't say saddled. I, that sounds bad. It's, I, yeah, it's, I was saying, it was that's a, a negative word. That's a, that's a not, yeah, that was the wrong yeah. word. We, we found we, our way. We found our oldie. way into an oldie, yeah. but a goodie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, yeah, it was an interesting journey to, to watch this flick, man. I really, not to dive right in, but I, I fucking liked it a lot, man. And, and it, it really turned into something pretty fucking cool. I, yeah, I would so say. this week's movie, uh, if you didn't read it on the title of this podcast is in a lonely place. That's right. Uh, which is the 1950 film by Nicholas Ray starring Humphrey Bogart. Uh, yeah, that's How'd what I wanted here? to say. I was happy that we found a movie that was available somewhere because we had a <laughs> bit of a disaster last week with sling blade, not being able to be obtained anywhere. So it was nice that this was, I think available multiple places, rentable, but, uh, but this is one that we hit on the dartboard last week. And if memory serves, this is a drew, this is a drew choice, right? It certainly is. Nice. You want to? So I guess let's start there. That's always the best place to start. I think is how how did this get to the board? So <laughs> it's funny. We were talking briefly about old before we got into this, and that's actually the entry point for this. Really? Oh, okay. I'm very I'm very curious to hear how this. So happened. the entry point is that over the summer. So first of all. Uh, Let's let's rewind to July of 2021. Um, this was I, I I've been talking off and on. Uh, I don't remember if this has made it onto the podcast or not, but I've talked off and on a little bit about how I've been getting back into physical media. And back in July, there was the annual Criterion sale where all of their discs go on half off. Mm -hmm. So I was on a, a binge of of uh, picking up. Uh, Blu-rays from the Criterion Collection, and I was just buying stuff that, like, I I liked uh, stuff that uh, from directors that I, I respected uh, that I wanted to check out more of their stuff. I was picking up movies that uh, just like were in a genre that I liked and looked cool. Um, so I was already in this mode. I go to see Old, which I believe came out in July. I could have that wrong, but I'm, no, that sounds if right. I didn't see it then, then I saw it a couple of months prior to that and just had it in my brain. Mm -hmm. But I was watching a lot of interviews with M night Shyamalan and I was, uh, watching or, or listening to podcasts about old and, you know, just kind of like, I don't know, just kind of, uh, I just was really into the movie and I wanted to learn everything about it. And I was, I was getting back into the idea of M night Shyamalan as like an auteur and like a really interesting filmmaker, um, which was not something I had really considered in a long time. And, uh, he had mentioned in one of his interviews, M night Shyamalan did that, uh, Nicholas Ray was one of his favorite filmmakers. Mm. And I, rewinding even further back to college, I was a film studies minor in college and one of the classes I took was a film noir class, um, which was all about the genre of film noir or the quote unquote genre, whether, you know, depending on who you talk to. Um, 
and we watched a lot of these kind of movies and I just got super into like, you know, the Maltese Falcon, double indemnity, um, uh, out of the past, uh, lady from Shanghai, all these movies are like detour. Like I love, love, love these kind of just like kind of moody atmospheric, uh, movies from the forties, fifties, uh, where it's just like this, this atmosphere of paranoia. And like, there's always like a, a, a beautiful woman who uh, like complicates uh, the main character's life. And I don't, I don't know. It's just like, like, it's just a, 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 a warm bath kind of genre for me where I just flip them on and I just like, Oh, I also have kiss me deadly on criterion, which is an mm. awesome movie. Uh, if you liked this, you got to go watch kiss me deadly. It's great. Um, mm. very different movie, but, but anyway, within the same kind of milieu, Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> we need a better word than that one, man. Yeah, that, I, that one, that one rolls off the tongue like a fart, man. That I was kind of the intention that of that. No, you yeah. you said it well because you were doing it like in a deprecating manner. But there's no way an English speaker can use it without sounding like a douche, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, kind of. Unless you go yeah. with the the actual pronunciation. But yes, um, I don't know. I so this was just some anyway. Going back to my Criterion obsession, this was on the Criterion collection. Was half off. Love the genre. Heard about the filmmaker being great. Was into M Night Shyamalan's influences and was like, I'm just going to pick this up blind. Picked mm-hmm. it up. Hadn't watched it until a few days ago. And yeah, that's where we are. That's awesome. I love that it kind of tethered to when you were studying film in college and the fact that you were getting into noir and movies like this. That's I'm, I'm glad that that showed up. Had you? Do you recall if you had seen any other Nicholas Ray flicks before? I have not, no. Um, so the only other one that has been kind of like on my radar is one that I really, really want to watch um, is Rebel Without a Cause. I've, I've mm. never seen James Dean's Rebel Without a Cause, um, and I would really like to check that out. Um, but otherwise, no, I mean, I'm not, he's not a filmmaker that's really been on my radar until recently. Yeah. No, I mean, I had, when I saw what he had done, Rebel Without a Cause is the only one I recognized, including this film, uh, In a Lonely Place that we watched. But uh, I had never heard of that. And Rebel Without a Cause, I was like, oh, is that that Dean one? It's like, I think that's that that James Dean movie. So I had heard of that. And that's apparently a great movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this this definitely intrigued intrigued me to check out more of his work personally. so I guess just like initial reaction, you put it up on the board. It had been kind of in your collection for a while. Did it, did it meet your expectations? Were you happy with the film? how did you feel about it overall? It absolutely did. I thought this movie was brilliant. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, and I feel like that's coming, becoming a broken record for me on this podcast, but, uh, mm. I don't know. I, I really, really loved this movie. You I wouldn't thought. have liked sling blade. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> that was your chance Drew. <laughs> I got, I'm feeling like I got to put some more shitty movies on my list now. Uh, interrupt. No, no, you're fine. Uh, no, I, I think I, I, I really love movies that never let you in on what you should think about certain things. Like I think, I think, Mm. you know, I, I, the, the, you, I just, I appreciate that this movie, um, plays with duality a lot and it, it, you know, it, it, its characters have depth and, and layers to them. And, you know, you have to kind of take a character 
as having both good and bad traits. It's not a black and white, you know, film, even though it's literally in black and white. (laughs) Uh, it's, you know, it's very, it's playing in this gray area and, and, and I just, I, I really appreciate that, especially as a movie from its era where, you know, like, you know, and, and I think this is part of why people don't, typically venture into classic films maybe as much as I wish they did is because a lot of what you watch in older films is tropes being developed, right? Mm. It's like they're, they're figuring out like, this is what works to generate a reaction. And because it's the most base level of that trope, it feels boring to people who have seen a movie that's riffed on that 15 times, you know, from 15 different influences before it. So it's like, you know, modern movies are just a product of these movies doing it first, but because this movie, like, like older movies are more stripped down and like, it's the first attempt. It just feels more lackluster to people nowadays. This movie doesn't feel that way at all to me. This movie, this movie feels fresh. It feels like, uh, it's, I never knew where it was going. I never knew, uh, who to totally trust, who to believe. Like, um, I, I love that this movie gives a female perspective. I just think it's like, it's a really, really interesting movie for its time, but also for mm. now. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear you say that because when you're talking about like, it's to some degree, our generation's aversion to diving into older films because we have these expectations of, you know, like you said, the introduction of a trope. When you were saying that, I thought you were going to say that this movie fell into that category and I was getting ready to dive through the screen and be like, no, 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 Drew, this is a, this is so, so happy to hear you say that this is not that movie. I totally agree. This movie was like really fresh, really complicated, uh, very, uh, dark, heavy, interesting, great writing, funny, and an incredible performances. That was the thing that, that blew me away the most about it from like a space shot view mm-hmm. is as you and I have been watching older movies for a little while now. And sometimes the acting is a little starchy and like, and it's whatever you roll with it or you don't. Like we watched the original King Kong uh, and we both really love that movie, but you can say, yeah, the acting it's like not great theater, but just go with it and you'll have fun. This movie was, was not like that at all for me. I, I was like, no. this is great acting. This like everybody in this movie of the of the four main players, and, and even the people in the orbit of it are all incredibly strong. Mm-hmm. And one person in particular, I could not take my eyes off of. So like this person is like stealing every scene, and we'll get to that when we dive into the performances. But that that's one of the things I walked away from overall. Is like I really liked the movie. I thought it moved at a great pra- pace. It's only ninety and minutes. It's, it's a it's in and out. It's it's in beautiful. and out, and it's so lovely subverted my expectations because I didn't know anything about this movie. Obviously it's a true pick. I knew it was noir and I knew it was Bogart. That's, that's what, that's what I knew about it. So as it started, I'm thinking, is this going to be like a detect? Whenever someone says noir, I immediately think a private detective. So the movie starts as like, Oh, this is a Hollywood movie. I, I didn't, I didn't expect that. I didn't know he was going to be a screen. I actually didn't know that till I flipped it on either. Yeah. It was a really fun discovery for me. I was like, oh shit, this is a movie about the movie business. When the movie gets started, it totally subverted my expectations because I was looking at when he started talking to 
the Mildred character, who's played by Martha Stewart, I guess. Who, I'm assuming no relation to the Martha Stewart <laughs> from our time. And fair, fair assumption. I was just thinking, like, I can't. I thought she was going to be the lead, the female lead of the movie. It's like, I can't. I don't want to watch a movie where, like, the, there's just some dame from the movies who talks like this. And, oh, I don't know. I've never been to the big city before. I was like, I don't want to see a female character like this. Please, They're no. also playing that kind of, like, Exactly. Exactly. I wrote, music is too much. And I, and I thought, and that was on first viewing. I was like, music is too much. Because it was leading you down this false road of like, it's just this like light, lovey music. And I'm like, I'm like, Jesus Christ, if Humphrey Go Bogart falls for this woman, I can't, I can't. Cause I just thought she was such a lame character. And then the movie just went in a completely unexpected direction. I was like, Jesus, she's dead. It's like, holy <laughs> shit. And then this other, you know, this other character comes in, you know, uh, played by Gloria Graham. Laurel Gray is the character's name. And she's she's fascinating. She gives a good performance. She's a deep, complicated character. And I was like, okay, thank God. And then I could settle down and really enjoy And she the gets movie. better over the course of the movie, in my opinion. Like, the way yeah. her character develops, that performance gets fucking incredible by the end, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, again, all of the performances really swept me off my feet. And I was so happy that it wasn't about... The story wasn't about the Kochek girl because I really was nervous that that's where we were going to be spending our time. I just, again, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I don't like those sort of classic Hollywood depictions of women. It's like these sort of ditzy. No, I, would, I don't I'm know. With you. I, it, I'm with it's you. This so, so dull. Um, and it's so happy that it wasn't that it was, no, it was it's, going for it's, something so much more. It's great. I mean, it, the movie is is definitely of its time but it's doing stuff that's really progressive from a female lens perspective like that mm -hmm. way i think it's really fascinating the way that this movie uh like puts front and center the the perspective of its female characters like mm. you know it's it, we're getting to the end of the movie really because you know we're we're kind of jumping ahead to uh, the back half of this movie which is really about uh laurel and and her coming to grips with not knowing whether or not Dixon killed this girl or not, mm -hmm. um, after she's, you know, started to fall in love with him. Um, you know, and, and the movie starts to follow her and, and has a scene of just her and Sylvia, uh, Brub's wife, uh, talking about it and, and kind of like her voicing her concerns and being like, you know, I, I brought this up to, you know, so that you would laugh and I could feel better about it, but you're not laughing. And like, yeah. you know, like that whole scene is just, it, yeah, it's great. great. I mean, it's like, it's not, it's not just about this woman who is, um, like dumb and not picking up on this guy, you know, being a killer and having to have other people tell her he is. It's about this woman getting seeds of doubt planted in her and her processing it. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's like, it, it's just a, it's a very active thing for her, which is like, it, yeah. it's interesting for the time that it's giving her that much agency. Um, yeah. and I think, you know, you also see it in like Sylvia as a character I thought was fascinating. And I thought it was a brilliant performance from Jeff Donnell, uh, uh, who plays Sylvia? She like she delivered. I, I I thought the whole sequence of Dick's coming over to dinner with her and Brub, um, and then reenacting his interpretation of what he mm -hmm. thought might have happened to to uh, uh, Martha or Mildred, excuse me, mm -hmm. um, and the terror that that 
puts in her and there's scene, there's parts in that scene where the camera completely sets on her face as the two men are talking mm-hmm. like she's not even involved in the conversation really she's just observing the conversation but it's lingering on her and letting mm-hmm. her kind of be the focal point in that moment and i thought that was really fascinating yeah dude i think you're you're so you're so right like i love that there's scenes that's just these women talking and there's not these two characters talking. There's not, it's not a male perspective on the scene. There isn't it, a dude It doesn't there pass the, the Bechdel test, I will say. Yeah. Um, unfortunately. But I mean, it comes goddamn close. For, and for the time, I think that's an achievement in itself. Loved what you said about Jeff Donnell, who plays Sylvia Nikolai. Her performance, that's the one to me that stole the show. That's the standout for you? That every time she was on camera, I was like, I can't take my eyes off this person. She's electric, She's, yeah. She is delivering an incredible performance. It's so natural. It's so outside of what I would expect from a 1950s movie. Her eyes are so emotive. The things that are supposed to be subtle are subtle. The things that are supposed to be she's awkwardly lying are correct. And she's also gorgeous. And I just find her fascinating to see on camera. But the performance was... For me, that like she was stealing almost every scene she was in, even when she wasn't speaking. I, my eyes were drawn to her. I mean, that's probably part of why Nick Ray focuses on her in those scenes in some ways is yeah. just because it's like watching her face and just like like p- watching her process things is a fascinating image in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. And and then I found out she's from Wyndham, Maine, which hey. is where one of my schools was from. So she passed away in 88. So rest in peace. Rest in peace. But, uh, really, uh, was, was for me what, what swept me off my feet. But I, I do love that. Again, the women in this film have, have agency and they have, they're, they're full characters. Well, I think this is actually an interesting time maybe to bring up the fact that, uh, Gloria Graham and Nicholas Ray were, uh, married when the, the movie was first starting to, to be made and they mm-hmm. actually split up during the making of this movie. And this movie is in a lot, in a lot of ways, a reflection of their relationship and the, you know, the unfurling of that relationship, you know, kind of happening on film. It's mm-hmm. really interesting to think about like the fact that Nick Ray is like giving his wife, this main character, this main female character, like the, this much agency in this story and like letting her like kind of hold the center stage and process like those kind of feelings on screen. It's really, I I don't know. That sort of stuff is the inner workings of, of a set. Um, after something like that happens are really interesting to me. I'd be fascinating to know when they split, in the it was, course of from filming. what I read, it was like halfway through and he slept on a couch in the production offices for the rest of filming. And they didn't tell anyone else on set that they had split uh, wow. until the end of the movie because they didn't want people to think of like things differently. And like, like they didn't wow. want to throw the set into disarray. Apparently it was a pretty amicable split in a, in a lot of ways. It just was like, they just weren't good for each other or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't want to speak on the details cause I don't know them offhand, but I I'm sure there was alcohol involved because it always was at that time. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) That's, that's cool though. It sounds like it wasn't so much about not wanting to be embarrassed, but it's like, well, for the sake of this art that we're going for, let's not tell anybody. Yeah. Uh, So let's try to keep everything as it is. They told the staff that he was sleeping on the couch because he was working late nights and couldn't, and just needed to get sleep. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. I mean, that's that. I mean, that's our breakups are always sad, but that's crazy that they weathered through. What did you think of 
of of Gloria's performance overall. She obviously plays the main protagonist. See, for me, she's the standout of this movie. I think really her scenes towards the end, um, specifically like when she locks the door and and Dix is like freaking out, you know, and starting to just you know things are elevating again. Yeah, his paranoia Um, is spinning out. Yeah, her her kind of trying to control the situation but simultaneously panicking and trying to look for another exit and kind of trying to feel out how she handles this situation i thought that was just outstanding from Mm. her um i i think it's great i think it's really it's a tough sell especially right like today watching a romance where you don't really see any sort of courtship whatsoever and yeah. buying it, you know, but I think her scenes when he's like finally back writing again and she's supporting him and like, you know, there's so much warmth to her in those parts that you totally buy that she is like fallen for this guy and you, you don't even need the evidence to, to prove it. Like you just get yeah. it. And I think yeah. that's a, that's a difficult thing to pull off. Yeah, and those scenes for sure. And I think I think for me, I really enjoyed the vast majority of her performance. But there were a couple scenes where I felt it felt kind of melodramatic and a little thick to me. Like after the proposal goes south and she's kind of like crying in, in her pillow and that, that character uh, pops up, the guy who's like the movie producer. What's his name? Mel. Mel, yeah, the, the, agent. the agent, yeah, yeah. So Mel shows up, and she's just like the way she's kind of crying, just kind of that felt. That was the only time in the movie that it felt like old movieish to me. Like that's the type of acting I thought I was going to get throughout this movie before I started it. Okay. And so, so happy that that was such a small moment in the. Yeah, film. I don't know why I didn't. I didn't read it that way. I mean, maybe those those parts just didn't stick out to me as much as the opposites did. But you know, yeah. that's fair. I think that's a fair reading. But I mean, overall, I thought it was a super, super strong performance. There were just some things. I was like, yeah, it's a little, yeah, it's a little Shakespearean or something. But I don't know. Minor. Very, very minor. Well, we've been uh, we've been dancing around it a bit, but I feel like we got to talk about Humphrey Bogart. We got to. I mean, I'm surprised that we we, we kind of took, we went down, you know, talked so was, about the So was the this your first movies. Humphrey Bogart movie? No. So um, I have seen, to my knowledge, two others. The others being The Treasure of Sierra Madre. And the Kane Mutiny. I've never seen Casablanca. I think, I can't remember if it's on my dartboard or just on my nominees list, but it's one of my shamers. Um, but out of the three Humphrey Bogart performances I've seen, based on my recollection, I think this might be my favorite. And I, I don't know. He, I think, is fantastic in this movie and really plays just the burden of his a man and his demons and his rage and like can't just can't keep it together plays it incredibly well and um very natural very uh realistic very light and natural on camera i mean he's a huge star so it's not a big surprise but i didn't expect the acting to be this good with him either just like everybody else i was oh, shocked he, at how good it he's was he's incredible in this movie i think i had read that Louise Brooks, uh, who wrote an essay about Humphrey Bogart in kind of a biographical sense, I, I, it sounds like anyway. I'm, I'm not mm. familiar with the the right or, or the the piece, but um, <clears throat> she said that, from her understanding, this was the closest that 
any Humphrey Bogart performance came to basically playing himself mm. and that this was the duality of this kind of character, the, between the, the angry side, the violent side and the, you know, loving, you know, warm, you know, kind of friendly, uh, you know, uplifting person. Like they were, they were both within Bogart as a person, it sounds like. And mm. it's interesting that this movie kind of encapsulates that. And it, and it feels so real. Like his performance in this movie does like the only times it ever reaches any sort of like theatricality are kind of the elements where it's kind of playing up the violent side. I feel like a little bit and the, the mm -hmm. over angry side, like, you know, when Ray really goes in with the, the crazy lighting and he just puts like the spotlight on his eyes and he gets like really yeah. like cast in shadow and like, right. Intense. You're talking about the, the dinner scene, right? Yeah. He's, where he's, he's like directing the murder. Yeah, he's like, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. He's like, you thing. got her by that thumb with your arm. Yeah. That's really but the I, only time it gets to kind of yeah. like theatricality. Like other than that, it's very controlled. Like I feel yeah. like the, especially that scene that I referenced before with the locked door where he's just, that felt to me like just a man getting really pissed off at his wife, like in a, in yeah. a really like toxic way. And yeah, like it totally. felt real. And, and, and that, there was a sadness to those parts that you could just like feel that this guy doesn't want to be this person. And he just like, mm. can't help himself in those moments. And like the, like the moment where he slaps Mel at the dinner table and yes. then like goes into the bathroom with him and is like a pot. Like this is a guy who knows every problem that he has. Yeah. He just can't control them. Yeah. And, and that's I, such and a cool performance, like on a performance level that he pulls that off. When he's doing that spinning out, you know, she's in the other room kind of trying to hide her packing and, and, and bring the ring back. I feel like at least twice in that scene, there's a moment where Humphrey Brogard goes and gets ready to light a cigarette, but doesn't. Mm -hmm. And it's just like these heartbreaking moments when you're watching the movie the second time. It's just like, just chill out, dude. Just stop. Just chill out, have your cigarette and calm down. And people are telling him to do that throughout the movie. Like the first, I guess technically the second altercation we see with him. Because the first one is the driver, right in the beginning of the movie, where the wife of the other of the person in the other car it's literally the says first something. five seconds of the movie. Yeah, and he's like, "Yeah, let's settle it right here." And he's like, "Why? Who needs a curb?" And yeah. like, you, so already there's an initial like, "Okay, this guy, let's get a short fuse." <laughs> and then right after that, he goes into that great scene in like the lobby of the hotel or the bar, wherever they're at, and they're drinking. Yeah. And this other filmmaker who's had some recent success is like patting him on the shoulder. And he just goes, flies off the handle and pushes that guy back. So after that happens, someone who works at the bar comes up. Well, it's because he's like, defending his his bro. Like his, yeah, he's defending the the alcoholic actor. Yeah, and, well, because that's like one of his old, like old Hollywood buddies, like from when he was actually like writing good scripts before the war. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. He, and he's just like, he's like, oh, hey, hey, old friend. Or what does he call him? He's like- Thespian. Thespian, yes. Thespian. Yeah, but he 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 pushes that other guy's back back and and it gets in yeah. that altercation. And then the hotel person or the bar person comes up and is like, "Just calm down. Yeah. I'll pick out the eggs because he ordered ham and eggs." Like, I'm sure eggs, he deserved down. it, but can you take yeah. it outside take it, next time? Take I it think outside. Yes, exactly. And so I feel like there's a lot of times in the movie where people are telling him, "Just calm down. Have your cigarette. Calm down." And I feel like he has moments towards that final tailspin to heed that advice and he just doesn't. And it's just such a kick in the teeth. It's like, God damn, dude, if you would just calm down and let the phone ring well, and, I and think find this I, information, you might've saved it, but you didn't. 
No, totally. And I think that's also encapsulated with Laurel's last line in the movie where she's talking on the phone to the captain uh, who's apologizing because he got it wrong. And she's like, yesterday that would have meant the world. You know, it's like we could have worked through this probably. Yeah. If we Um, had gotten through this, this cloud of, is he a murderer? There's enough of a good guy in here that we can work with this. We might've, they would have had a chance. They would have had a chance. Yeah. Uh, But the way it just spun out so bad. And it, I mean, just, well, just initially the, when he goes and proposes and she's clearly uncomfortable, like, that, that right there was the road to destruction. He's pushing her into this sort of stuff. So even if the phone call, even if he did smoke the cigarettes and calm mm. down before actually assaulting her physically, uh, it still might not have been enough because he might have been too far gone already because he was so controlling and so aggressive. And it was great to see, I mean, not great to see, but not what I would have expected to see a female character recognizing this in 1950 and rejecting it completely and packing a suitcase to get the fuck out of there, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't know. I, I was so sad too that scene when he first comes back to apologize and she's packing and he doesn't get wind that she's packing yet. It's right before she, he spots the wedding ring on her finger and he just says like, I, I'm sorry, it won't happen again. And at that, him delivering that line really kicked me in the stomach because it's like, this must be what people who are in abusive relationships hear all the time. Totally. And and we're watching this, Humphrey Bogart say this, like that won't happen again. And none of us are believing what he's saying. The audience, nobody's like, we're watching this be like, dude, this is going to be a constant problem. But this I think is the movie is saying DNA. that too. Absolutely. No, the, and the way it's shot, it's looking down on him. I don't think the movie is saying, just give this guy a chance. I think the movie is saying, this guy isn't going to change. No. He's, he's always going to be broken. slinking back in and apologizing. But this rage is a part of him and it's it's just not, it's not going away. So that is so heartbreaking to see that. Cause it's just like, I myself have, am fortunate enough to have never been in an abusive relationship, but I've heard that that's such an element of it, of just like the apologizing and the, and the won't happen agains and all this stuff. And it's just, it's just, it's just rough to rough to see. No, totally. I mean, like I look like I grew up with, you know, alcoholic father, like I, I get it. Um, like yeah. there's, there's, parts of, of him that were a good person, you know? And it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, there's just things that you can't, like you can't break out of a person at a certain point unless they want to break it out of themselves. Yeah. Um, but this movie is very careful to be like, this is not a good guy. I think like, I, I think, I think like the movie does like sympathize with him, but at the same time it's, it's saying like, no, this is like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't like, support this guy. The guy needs like yeah. fundamental change. Well, and just like the whole, like, I love that scene of Mel talking, talking and just saying like, he's dynamite, but you know, he's going to blow up sometime, you know? And it's like, you got to take the good with the bad. This just comes with this person. And he, and he, Mel is able to put up with it. I even think in that scene where he gets, he gets hit at the restaurant, Mel gets hit. I couldn't tell even on second view, did they agree to stay together professionally or did they decide to part ways? Cause they shook hands. They shake hands because I think Mel is saying, no, I look, I know this is part of the deal when I, when I yeah. stop with you. 
Yeah, I got you. Yeah, because that was that was a really sad scene too. And you mentioned, but there's genuine affection there between those two characters and other scenes too. So it's like it is counterbalanced. Yeah, and you'll note too. Not that that that's justifying it by any means, but no. But Bogart, you said it earlier too. He always recognizes after he's done something bad that it's something bad, and he tries. I mean, yeah, he beats up the football player and sends him money. Yeah, he tries to. Yeah, you mentioned that. I didn't remember that scene. He, what, what so football player? He, he's really pissed off at Laurel after they leave the beach with uh, the other couple. Oh, the other driver. I didn't know he was a and football player. And he sideswipes the other driver. Well, it, I say football player because they reveal that he's like a star UCLA football player on like oh, the and cover the paper. of the paper. Oh, that's, right I didn't that. catch that. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, that's just like he, but he beats him up. He gets his name from the paper and then he sends him $300 instead of the $200 it costs him for the paint job for like the inconvenience on top of it. Oh, wow. Oh, holy shit. Yeah. I missed, I missed that part of it. Yeah. Do you think if, if, do you think if Laurel wasn't there, would he have brought in the rock down on that football player, by the way? He was close. That's what the movie's asking. I don't know. He was close. He was close for sure. I don't know, man. I I was thinking a lot. You mentioned people he reminded you of. I was thinking of Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull. Interesting. And I was seeing all sorts of comparisons of, I think, I think Raging Bull might've been tapping into this movie a lot because I would not doubt that at all. If you remember the scene where Joe Pesci smashes the glass against that guy's head and they get in a big fight at the dinner. Do you remember that? It's been a while. Remind me of the scene. Uh, it's a scene where uh, Jake LaMotta, played by De Niro, goes off to train and he tells his brother Joe Pesci to keep an eye on his wife because he thinks she's fooling around. And he goes to this bar and he sees his wife with some of their like manager friends or something. And Joe Pesci goes over and confronts them and is like saying to the wife, like, get your stuff, like, get your stuff. We're getting out of here. And then the other guy's like, Joey, this is innocent. This is innocent. This is just a couple of drinks. And Joe Pesci's like, right, right. You can understand my brother. And then he just smashes the guy in the side of the face with a glass and a huge fight erupts. And it's at, it's at the Copa and they just get in a huge tussle right there at the table. And the women are like kind of screaming and diving. And just that scene, I was thinking a ton of when he hits Mel at the dinner. Like just, I don't know, maybe it's just partly because of the black and white, but the rage in a public setting and an act of violence over a circular dinner table, there are a lot of parallels that made me think it was over like a perceived slight. Yeah. Over, over like over paranoia because that's it. Cause at that point in, at that point in, in a lonely place, Bogart had just said, bring the phone over here. You won't take a call in front of me. You know, so he's already spinning out in a very similar energy that Joe Pesci was, even though he's not married to the person. But like, anyway, I think you get what I'm saying. No, totally. Yeah. Paranoid, coiled rage Mm -hmm. in in both scenes and also public humiliation and embarrassment and an outburst um, that there seemed like a lot of things. But I think, you know, you mentioned it earlier when we were talking about the duality of Bogart. I mean, maybe we talked about it enough, but it sounded like you, could you perceive, like before it was revealed that he didn't, were you on the fence on whether, whether I, I was on the thought? fence throughout this movie. And I think wow. that's the intention of the filmmaker is like that he's throwing you tidbits to make you think he could be the killer or he, he, he might not be. Um, 
you know, I, I think if you, I've, so I've watched this movie three times now, twice without commentary and once with, wow. Um, Triple. Yeah. One of, one of the without commentaries, I was kind of like on my phone and stuff. So it wasn't like a full, like intense rewatch, but you know, still, Mm -hmm. still, you know, three times. Um, it's easy. It's 90 minutes. I just throw it on and power through it. Um, Mm. there, the early part of this movie, all the stuff that, um, all the stuff that Brub is inquiring about at the house when he first interrogates him is all valid things that you don't totally have answers for yet. You do know that he told her to, that he told Mildred to go to the cab stand around the corner and then he paid her and you don't see anything after that. So you don't know if he, you know, left and followed her out or whatever. Like you don't have any reason to think that. And all mm-hmm. of the violent parts you see of him later, uh, are like, um, they're always prompted by something. They're not just like out of the blue violent outbursts. So it does feel strange still. I will, I will say, I I don't think that I ever like was convinced that he's the killer by any means, but there's always the seed of doubt and they keep layering in things where you're just like, this guy is violent. Yeah. I mean, I, that scene, I love that scene when he gets brought in for questioning. Um, I love the way, And and that's something I think we can hit too. The dialogue in this movie is just incredible. But this scene is a great example of that, where um, he's brought in, and we assume we assume that what's happened, right? Because like that his his police officer buddy, um, another great performance by the way, uh, was um, Frank Lovejoy who plays Brubs. Um, He comes over and he starts questioning, and we're we're thinking in our head, or I was. Oh, is this chick dead? Like, is he being questioned for this for this potential murder? But when they're having the conversation with the the head detective, like it's not brought up until the end of the conversation. It's not confirmed that this is what happened. And I don't know. I just love the way that conversation is structured when we're introduced to it. Yeah. And where how it eventually at the end he's like he kind of makes that statement. It's like so a girl is murdered after she sees you and you got nothing yeah, to say. Yeah. And the conversation and blah, 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 like blah. in hindsight feels yeah like weirder than it did when you were in it. You know. Yeah, and it's like it's like three minutes or you know maybe not three minutes but a chunk That's of time in. I yeah, didn't it's like, think about I it feel that like way. An, an, I would have thought that an older movie would just dive right in and be like, so we're bringing you in for questioning of this dead. She's dead. What do you have to say for yourself? And, <laughs> and, and it's just so not that. The movie is like so much more. It, it throws you in halfway through the conversation and then leads you to the conclusion of it at the end. And it's just like really interesting dialogue scene. That's interesting because it's also it's playing on your perception of events as they're happening. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, I never really got the, the, I never felt like he was guilty of it. I thought he was a, a, a sociopath with a, with a short fuse is kind of the vibe I got from his, from, from the way the movie rolled out. And by sociopath, I don't mean like, like gleefully hurting people. I mean like just not a lot of, not an emotional person and he has a very short fuse. And so the way like, and you said it earlier, he's always in his rage, he's always reactive. Something has to happen to set him off. And in his, his counter reaction is often way over the top and way beyond what the situation warrants. But it's always something that starts it. And the way that conversation with the Kochek 
woman ended and how she left after reading the book. Like there was no negative. Like he maybe found her kind of annoying, but he, you know, gave her the $20, sent her on her way. Thank you for your time. And so for that, I was like, there's no way. Even when he was acting like a psycho well, interesting. Yeah. at dinner, I was like, well, he is, he is not doing himself any favors. Um, with how that was the only moment where that. I started to to maybe think he had something to do with it. But maybe your yeah. reading is more the correct reading, which is like maybe maybe Nicholas Ray is not saying at any point you should think this this guy might be a killer. Maybe he's just using that as a jumping off point to examine this character's violent tendencies and throw Laurel's, you know, perception of the character into question. It's less about the mystery of it. It's more about what that does to these characters. So apparently Nicholas Ray, they shot a different ending first in which the, the ending was that Humphrey Bogart kills her in that final confrontation scene. And, it was interesting to hear that they decided it was not studio pressure. It was not um, like they screened it and people didn't like the ending. Ray decided on his own that he didn't want that to be the ending of the film. So they changed it to the, the abuse scene that did not lead to death and then the phone call and then all this stuff. But think of how different that movie would be. That ending is, it's already a very sad, tragic ending as it stands it would be even darker and much, much worse. I don't think it, it would be true to death. the rest of the movie with the the death in there. Because again, yeah. it's like this movie is, if if you leave, if, if you put in that Humphrey Bogart kills her at the end of this movie, you no longer can sympathize with that character at all yeah. on any level. And not to yeah. say that this character is inherently meant to be sympathetic, but there are parts of him that are meant to be like, this guy has good parts to him and he's not, yeah. he's not an evil person to its He's core. not a monster. Yes. And if he had done that, it would have been a monstrous turn for sure. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're entirely right. And I would not be surprised if that's what, if that's what Ray thought. I'm sure it is. If he was just like, you know what? It doesn't work. All of a sudden we just made a, we made a film about a descendant of madness with no redemption. That's what, that's what it would be. Yeah. And it's like, well, why not make it? It's so much more nuanced and it's just like, it's, it's almost sadder in a way. The, like yeah. That. There's not redemption in this, but there's, there's these people at least let like get to go on and they, they, yeah. you know, there's, there's a hope for, for better things in the future, even if this didn't work out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it, it really is such a sad ending. Just well, and you know, there call. is, I mean, he, he's getting back to his writing though. Like at the end, mm-hmm. like Mel, you know, sends the script to the studio. The studio loves it, even though Mel doesn't like it. And he's like back on track. It feels like a little bit in some way. So like there is hope in that. Yeah. But also one could argue that she was the muse that really got sure. him flowing again, you know, but, um, yeah, I don't know, man. It was just, um, I mean, just think of how, how much we've gone into this movie and all over the place. Just, it just speaks to the density of this movie. And this movie came out in 1950. It's crazy. This is a great, really great movie, I think. And I also have grown to really enjoy movies set in this time period. And these movies that have this sort of post-World War II, where World War II is like this is directly in the rear view of all these characters. Mm. And it's just like, just mentioned. It's not like today, like if a, if a movie was set like directly after Vietnam and it was filmed like today, like there would be all this 
um, examination of things like PTSD and things like that. And I'm not saying that's bad. That's that's fine to explore those things. But I just think it's interesting seeing movies from this time where like the war is just spoken of like, oh, we, that's how they met. You know, that's how Bogart and it's the detective character lives, met. Yeah. It's like, it's just, yeah, it was, you haven't written good anything since the war. And it's like the war is just this moment in time. It's a, it's that, a shared experience for such a larger group. Than for, the, for the globe, pretty yeah. much. And it's just crazy that like these people just were going on about their lives five years after the fact and they went back to Hollywood or whatever. Because based on that statement Mel said or whatever that person said, uh, you haven't written anything good since the, fo- since the war, since before the war. Leads me to believe he was writing before the war and then got drafted and got pulled into the war. And then, and then everyone returned to their lives after the war. And it's just, yeah. I don't know, it's just this crazy thing. And I really like movies set in this time of just like, no, like the master is another movie like that. Now that does obviously take the angle of exploring PTSD, but uh, this is, I don't know. It's just, I love that time period where the whole world had this terrible shared experience together. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like fascinating ground for a story. And again, I would say it's a minor part to this story, but I think it shines some light on the culture at the time of 1950. Well, it's interesting. I mean, going back to kind of my, my film noir history class, uh, that I took in college, like, I I mean, one of the key elements of, of noir is, is the post-war period being this period of, uh, uh, you know, fear and uncertainty and, and paranoia. Um, and, and that there were, you know, the communists, uh, red scare was, was a big part of everyone's life at this point. Right. And so I thought, you know, one thing that was brought up on the criterion discs commentary with a film scholar named Dana Poland, um, he, he's talking a lot about how at this point, you know, communist sympathies, uh, were just kind of becoming part of the conversation when this movie was coming out in terms of like the McCarthy, uh, stuff was just kind of kicking off. And, uh, Elliot Kazan later, uh, uh, reported, uh, the guy who played Mel in this movie to, uh, the, I'm blanking on the names of all these, these entities from the time, the house on American activities committee, he named names, Elliot Kazan, famous filmmaker who I, you know, respect as a filmmaker, but like, yeah, he was an asshole. He like ruined people's lives. Like Mel, the, the, the actor who played Mel, who I'm like blanking on his name right now, Art Smith, uh, mm. was named by Elliot Kazan and lost his entire career around this time, uh, was blacklisted in Hollywood. So like this, the reason I bring this all up is to say that like, it's interesting to me that all these characters in this movie are like antagonistic and like they're every conversation is a chess match where it's like, they're trying to get the upper hand on each other. And it's like, everyone's like paranoid of what the other person is thinking and doing. And yeah. like all the cops and, 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 and Dick's conversations are about this chess match kind of situation. Um, and it's very much a, like, feels a product of that time and like all the, the, the fear undercurrent that was just through Hollywood at this time. Well, I think that's such a cool, cool correlation to make because just look at, as we talked about, like paranoia is just very evident in this movie through Humphrey Bogart's character, 
very visibly and viscerally. And it's cool to think, I, I like what you're saying because I hadn't noticed that. But you're right, there is sort of politics and suspicion and these sort of this sort of feeling of paranoia that goes through all of their conversations. Well, and you play and everyone's playing stuff close to the chest and they're letting a little bit on, but they're maybe not telling ev- the whole story of things. I don't know. It's just like, it, it's always that. And the dialogue is, is always like very, um, like there's, there's dual meanings to things and they're, they're, yeah. you know, they're, they're using kind of weird phrasings and, and it's just like, I don't know, everything's like just feels murkier than, than, yeah. than real life. Yeah. I mean, we, I, I really do love the dialogue in this movie. When we get to the point of like post that a post show wrap up notes and stuff. I'll, I'll hit a couple of the ones that really stuck yeah. out to me, but the whole, just from a macro level, the whole movie flows so well conversationally. And, um, I just think the dialogue is just, it just flies. I think it's natural. It's breezy. It's funny. It's witty. It's, it's all over the place. It's just a great, great script. I think one of the better, written movies we've you and I've watched recently and we've seen some really good movies but something about the dialogue in this for me just really hit me and I really loved the way it was written and I I was left thinking from the direction like he must be he must be great with his actors because I really that was the thing I walked away with most these performances are amazing and I bet he's great kind of like how uh, Mike Nichols what we, we, we see him with his actors. It's like he's coming from the stage yep. and movies like Catch-22 and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. There, like there is a different vibe when you can tell a director is an actor's director. Yeah, and I get that vibe from him because, I don't know, something about these performances is, and I'm excited to explore more of his stuff. But it's like, I think he's great with his actors. Yeah, I believe it. Good fucking movie. I think that's where we'll leave it. Um, that was In a Lonely Place, Nicholas Ray's masterpiece from 1950. I don't know. We don't need to throw around masterpieces willy-nilly as I tend to, but it's a really freaking good movie. I dug it. Would you, was there, is there anyone that you know that you would not recommend this to? Or would you pretty much anybody? I mean, I don't know. I mean, there are people I feel like who just wouldn't get into this on a fundamental level just because it's an old movie, but... If they're open to exploring something like that, I think this is a really good entry way into that kind of thing because I think it is a fascinating movie just on an intellectual level, and I think that's timeless to me. Yeah, I think it. I think I'll be talking about it a decent amount. I'll be curious to see if it pops up in conversation for, for me over the next week. A lot of times that happens. We talk about these movies, and then I get out in the in the wild, and someone brings us like, "Oh, I just saw this great movie the other week, Burning." Like, you ever heard of it? And like, that for me is kind of an indicator of how much a movie meant to me. Is if I'm talking about it a lot over the next couple of weeks. So we'll have to see with this one. But I really dug it, and I'm not going to be shy to recommend it for sure. Fuck yeah, I love that. <laughs> Well, shall we get to it? Let's the, do it. Do you the have business of the day? Do you have contenders? Do you have thoughts about what's going in place? This is number one too. This is a big number. I tend to shoot from the hip on these guys. I like um, going from the hip. You know, I, I've got my my list over here of of you know potentials. You know, I I kind of we've we've got a decent amount of older movies on here. I feel like I should put something a little bit newer maybe to balance it out a bit. Um, I'm, I'm between two movies and I think they come to mind for me because 
They're both female-led films. And I think in a lot of ways, this movie was Laurel's movie at, at its core. Mm. Um, I think even though it doesn't start on her, it finishes on her. You know, yeah. she ends the movie and it's her perspective that we're left with. And so for me, I think that's kind of what I want to take from this. And I want to get another like female like focused that. film on here. Yeah. I'm going to go with one that's kind of a, kind of a classic from the nineties that that's been one that's on my radar for years. Filmmaker that I love actor that I really like, haven't fully fallen in love with as a star maybe in the past, but this is one of those performances that's just like considered one of the greats. I'm going with Aaron Brockovich, Aaron Brockovich, Steven Soderbergh's 1999 film, Aaron Brockovich. Okay, this is is it exciting. is it 1999? Hold on, that's that sounds right. I can I will yeah, pull it up. 2000, 2000. Excuse me. Have you seen it before? I have. I saw it. I saw it once. I think on like on like TV after school or something. Okay, but it's not. A, I remember a couple of lines and a couple of scenes. Um, but it's it's a hodgepodge. So okay. it'll be somewhat newish to me for sure. Well. Aaron Brockovich is on the board. That is in place of In a Lonely Place at number one on the board. So let's run through the list one more time just so everyone remembers what is on the board currently. At number one, we've got Aaron Brockovich, newly added. Number two, we've got Ex Machina. Number three, Seven Samurai. Number four, The Big Sleep. Number five, In the Mood for Love. Number six, The Sixth Sense. Number seven, E.T. Number eight, Alan Partridge. Number nine, Days of Heaven. Number 10, Bound. Number 11, Vertigo. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, The Exterminating Angel. I totally fucking forgot what that movie is. Can't wait. Can't wait till we hit it. I mean, who knows? It might suck. Barton Fink, number 16, Putney Swope, number 17, Mother, the 2009 version, not lowercase m, Mother, exclamation point. Number 18, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, number 19, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, number 20, The Ballad of Cable Hogue, and of course, as always, The Bullseye's Friend's Choice. Okay. Exciting. Uh, Great list as always. I'm getting ready to chuck this fuck. Are you ready? Let's chuck it. All right, bear back. Drew, the dart has spoken. And what does the dart say? The dart says seven. Dart says seven. That is going to be, wait for it, E.T., the extraterrestrial. Oh, my God. We've come to it at last. (laughs) Up to it at last. The ultimate shamer. The ultimate shamer. Is this a shamer for you too? I forget. Yeah, it's a shamer for both of us. Good God. Wow. This is crazy. Wow. Well, this is technically my pick, but this feels like really a joint pick. It's a twofer. It's a it's yeah. a bit of a bother. Wow. Well, there there you have it. Next week we are going to be watching Steven Spielberg. And you know what? Honestly, with all the West Side story talk I've been doing recently, this is this feels right. Got to trust in the dart, man. This is beautiful. This feels right. All right. Our choice is E.T. the extraterrestrial. We'll be back next week with that episode. For now, uh, I'll leave you with uh, really good thoughts of, uh, well, hold on. Give us a quote. You you didn't give us a quote from one of your favorite quotes from the movie. You said you were going to get back to that. Close out with that. What quote? What quote? Whoa, whoa, you told whoa. me you that you about? had like favorite quotes that you wrote down from the movie and you were oh, going to tell I had us some that, of them. I had, I had just the one. Which was, uh, oh, oh, I actually had another one I skipped over. All right, I got it. Close out the show with that. 
Yeah, I'll close out the show with that. Now? (laughs) Yes, now. We'll have dinner tonight, but not together. A. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or if you have a bullseye selection you want to send our way, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. If it's for the bullseye, make sure you use subject line bullseye confidential. Follow us on Instagram at dartboardmovienight. Artwork for the show is created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out, Eric. Eric.